Francis S. Wilson, Justice. February 16, 1895, Charles H. Williams owned a tract of land in Salzburg Township, in Sangamon County, consisting of approximately 140 acres. On the day named, Williams conveyed 39.47 acres to Thomas J. Bacon. In 1937, the plaintiffs, Eugene E. Finn and Curtis Estaller Finn, acquired the title to this tract. The defendant, Zilphia Jane Williams, inherited the remaining 100 acres. By their complaint filed in the Circuit Court of Sangamon County, plaintiffs charged that the nearest and only available means of egress from an ingress to their land to a highway and to any market for their livestock and crops is by means of a right-of-way over defendants' tract immediately to the north, that their tract is not located or situated on any public highway and is entirely surrounded by land of strangers and the defendants' tract, that prior to and during all the time the 40 acres and the 100 acres constituted one tract and were owned by defendants' husband. The only means of ingress and egress to and from the single tract to a highway was by right-of-way in a northerly direction through a third tract of land north and adjacent to the present tract of defendant, and that this open road is still used by defendant as her only means of egress and ingress from and to the highway. The relief sought was the declaration of a right-of-way easement of necessity from the north line of plaintiff's tract through the defendant's tract to the beginning of the right-of-way road through the third tract mentioned. Answering, the defendant admitted that plaintiff's land is not located or situated on any public highway but averred that since its severance from her land it is and has been located on a private road leading to the south to a public highway. This averment, plaintiffs denied. Private permissive ways of ingress and egress over the land of strangers both to the east and to the south have been available to the successive owners, including plaintiffs, of the 40-acre tract since its severance from the 100-acre tract of the defendant in 1895, but each of the private ways over the lands of the adjoining strangers has been closed and, as defendant concedes, these permissive means of ingress and egress do not now exist. Two witnesses for defendant who had lived near the property in controversy for about 60 years testified to roads leading to the south and to the east from the 40-acre tract over the land of strangers. These roads were private roads over the property of strangers, and are now closed. Nathan Woodrum, defendant's son-in-law, testified that he had until recently lived on the 100-acre tract, and that a road through defendant's land connects with the road through the tract at the north, and that the road through this third tract is the only mode of access to the highway unless permission be obtained to go through the land of strangers. Since May, 1939, defendant has refused to permit plaintiff to travel further over the right-of-way through her tract. As a result of defendants' action, the plaintiffs have been unable to take their livestock and farm products to market, have had no means of egress from or ingress to their 40 acres on which they live, and have had to walk to the township highway, a distance of about three-quarters of a mile carrying such produce as they could. 33 NE 2D 226 IL 1941 P 555 the evidence does not sustain defendants' averment that plaintiffs have the use of a private road leading to the south to a public highway and defendant, by her concession that a present necessity exists, has apparently abandoned this claim. She maintains, however, that the necessity has arisen by reason of changed circumstances since the severance of the two tracts. Firmly established principles control. Where an owner of land conveys a parcel thereof which has no outlet to a highway except over the remaining lands of the grantor or over the land of strangers, a way by necessity exists over the remaining lands of the grantor. 
If, at one time, there has been unity of title, as here, the right to away by necessity may lay dormant through several transfers of title and yet pass with each transfer as appurtenant to the dominant estate and be exercised at any time by the holder of the title thereto. Plaintiff's land is entirely surrounded by property of strangers and the land of the defendant from which it was originally severed. A right-of-way easement of necessity was necessarily implied in the conveyance severing the two tracts in 1895, and passed by mean conveyances to plaintiffs in 1937. The fact that the original grantee and his successors in interest have been permitted ingress to and egress from the 40 acres over the land owned by surrounding strangers is immaterial. When such permission is denied, as in the present case, the subsequent grantees may avail themselves of the dormant easement implied in the deed severing the dominant and servient estates. P. 556. Notes and Questions 1. Easements by Necessity. The policies underlying the doctrine of easement by necessity are out to effectuate the intent of the parties and b to promote the efficient utilization of property. Sometimes these policies go together. Ordinarily, we can expect buyers not to agree to buy landlocked property unless they have guaranteed access to it by an easement over neighboring land. Thus granting a right of access both promotes land utilization and the intent of the parties. As the Idaho Supreme Court explained in Burley Brick and Sand Company v. Kofer, 629 P2D 1166, 1168, Idaho 1981. Elements for easements by necessity A way of necessity is an easement arising from an implied grant or implied reservation. It is of common law origin and is supported by the rule of sound public policy that lands should not be rendered unfit for occupancy or successful cultivation. Such a way is the result of the application of the presumption that whenever a party conveys property, he conveys whatever is necessary for the beneficial use of that property and retains whatever is necessary for the beneficial use of land he still possesses. Thus, the legal basis of a way of necessity is the presumption of a grant arising from the circumstances of the case. Courts split, however, on what to do when these policies conflict. Many courts, perhaps most courts today, hold that the ultimate purpose of the rule is to effectuate the intent of the grantor. Thus no easement of necessity will be recognized if it is clear that the grantor intended to sell, and the grantee knew she was buying, a landlocked parcel. The Restatement Third takes this view. Restatement Third of Property Servitudes, Section 2.15, 2000. See also Kitras v. Town of Aquina, 49 N.E. 3D 198, Mass. 2016. No easement by necessity because Wampanoag custom of access when lots were divided suggested no intent to create easement, Yellowstone River, LLC v. Merriweather Land Fund, LLC, 264 P3D, 1065, 1079, Mont. 2011, public policy justification only supports easement by necessity where intent to create one can be inferred from the circumstances. In contrast, in Frederick v. Consolidated Waste Services, Inc., 573 A 2D 387, 389, Me, 1990, the main Supreme Judicial Court held that an easement created by strict necessity arises when a grantor conveys a lot of land from a larger parcel and that conveyed lot is landlocked by the grantor's surrounding land and cannot be accessed by a road or highway. 
Because of the strict necessity of having access to the landlocked parcel, an easement over the grantor's remaining land benefiting the landlocked lot as implied as a matter of law irrespective of the true intent of the common grantor. 573A2D at 389. The Vermont Supreme Court similarly held in Traders, Inc. v. Bartholomew, 459A2D 974-978 VT. 1983, that easements by necessity often thwart the intent of the original grantor or grantee, because the demands of our society prevent any man-made efforts to hold land in perpetual idleness as would result if it were cut off from all access by being completely surrounded by lands privately owned, accord, Swan v. Hill, 855 so. 2d 459, 464, miss. Court. App 2003, the concern of the court is only whether alternative routes exist. Which approach is better? Should an easement by necessity be granted to the buyer to prevent the buyer's land from becoming landlocked when it is clear that the grantor did not intend to grant such an easement over the grantor's retained land? What arguments can you make on both sides of this question? P. 557, the dominant and servient estates were formerly one parcel and one. At the time of severance the dominant estate became landlocked. 2. 2. Statutory regulation of landlocked parcels. Some states have enacted statutes empowering the owner of a landlocked parcel to obtain an easement over neighboring land for access to a public road by application to a public official and payment of compensation to the landowner whose property is burdened by the easement. Washington State statute reads as follows. An owner of land which is so situated with respect to the land of another that it is necessary for its proper use and enjoyment to have and maintain a private way of necessity. Across, over or through the land of such other, may condemn and take lands of such other sufficient in area for the construction and maintenance of such private way of necessity. Wash Reverend Code Section 8.24.010, see also Allah. Code Section the 20th of March 18, ARC. Stat. Section 2766401, Mass. General Laws Ch. 82, Section 24, Miss. Code Section 657205, or Reverend Stat. Section 376.180. Recently, such statutes have faced challenges that they are unconstitutional on the grounds that they permit taking of property for private purposes rather than public use. C. In Ray opening a private road X. Rel. O'Reilly, 5A3D246, PA 2010. Remanding to determine whether application for condemnation of private road to provide access from landlocked land served a public purpose sufficient to sustain its constitutionality. Tokstorf v. Griffith, 626 NW2D163, Mish. 2001, Private Roads Act Unconstitutional Taking of Property for a Predominantly Private Purpose when it allowed owner to get access to landlocked parcel by buying easement over neighboring land. Problems 1. Adam owns property border to the east by a river, to the west and north by private property, and to the south by a public road. Along the river is a one-lane public street. Adam divides the property into northern and southern parcels, selling the northern parcel to Barbara. After some years, increasingly violent storms begin causing regular flooding and destruction of the one-lane street. The government decides to stop maintaining and rebuilding it, and soon the street is no more. Barbara's parcel is now landlocked. 
Can she assert an easement by necessity over Adam's land? 2. The doctrine of easement by necessity applies when land has no access to a public road. Should it apply when property is physically located along a public road but the cost of creating usable access to that road is prohibitively expensive? Compare Schwab v. Timmins, 589 NW2D1, WIS. 1999, no easement by necessity granted merely because the cost of building a road over a bluff to a public road was $700,000, Harkness v. Butterworth Hunting Club, 58 so. 3D 703, Miss. Court. App 2011, no easement by necessity where alternative access was available by building a road over several deep ravines, abrogating Mississippi Power Co. v. Fairchild, 791 so. 2D 262, Miss. Court. App. 2001, Power Company entitled to easement by necessity if the only access to a public road was over a river because the cost of bridge construction would be prohibitive, with Thompson v. Winery, 895 P2D 537, Colo. 1995, Great Necessity, rather than Absolute Necessity, was the standard in Colorado, but standard was not met when part of parcel across canyon used for recreational and grazing purposes could be accessed by horseback. 3. Relatedly, what if the only access to the land is by water? In Burge v. State, 915A2D189, VT. 2006, the court held that the fact that plaintiff could access a public road via boat from his property did not defeat an easement by necessity. Although the test in Vermont was that there must be strict P. 558. Necessity, the majority found that, since the easement is based on social considerations encouraging land use, its scope ought to be sufficient for the dominant owner to have the reasonable enjoyment of his land for all lawful purposes, 915A2D at 192. Access by water did not allow a modern owner reasonable enjoyment of his land. The dissent argued that water access was reasonable for property such as the plaintiffs, which was used for seasonal outdoor recreation, and that the majority had forgotten that t. he public's interest in access to landlocked property must be balanced against the serious consequences inherent in granting one landowner an uncompensated interest in the property of a neighbor, 915A2D at 196 Reinhardt, J. Dissenting. Who is right? Section 2.5 Modifying and Terminating Easements Easements last forever unless they are terminated 1. By agreement in writing, release of the easement by the holder 2. By their own terms, for example, if the deed conveying the easement expressly states that it is to last for 10 years 3. By merger, when the holder of the servient estate becomes the owner of the dominant estate 4. By abandonment, if it can be shown that the owner of the easement, by her conduct, indicated an intent to abandon the easement or 5. By adverse possession or prescription by the owner of the servient estate or by a third party. Sometimes courts terminate easements, six, because of frustration of purpose. Traditional doctrine terminates obsolete easements either by a liberal application of the abandonment principle, or by finding that the purpose of the easement has become impossible to accomplish, or that the easement no longer serves its intended purpose. Restatement, third, of property, servitudes, section 7.10, 2000. Seaboy CV, Chevron, 33A, 3D, 1109, 1114, NH, 2011, easement to get water from well terminated once well could no longer be located. 
The restatement third proposes changing this doctrine by permitting modification rather than termination when modification would permit accomplishment of the purpose of the easement, id, but few courts have as yet adopted this position. Many states have enacted marketable title acts, which may require that easements, along with other encumbrances on property interests, be re-recorded periodically, generally every 30 to 50 years, to be binding on future purchasers. The purpose of these statutes is to limit how far back a buyer must look in the chain of title to determine the validity of the seller's title and the existence of encumbrances on the land. However, they also have the effect of making unenforceable those interests that were put in place a long time ago and were of insufficient importance to anyone to be re-recorded in compliance with the statute. Failure to comply with the Marketable Title Act by re-recording the easement may leave the easement owner unprotected from a subsequent purchaser of the servient estate who, depending on the language in the statute, may be entitled to buy the property free of the burden of the easement. Section 3 Covenants Section 3.1 Definition and Background Negative Servitudes, commonly called covenants, are restrictions on use of land or obligations regarding land held by one who does not own the land. For example, a neighbor may have the right to prevent you from building over a certain height on your P559P 560 land, or the right to require you to mow your grass regularly. Common law originally placed many restrictions on covenants running with the land. Modern law generally eases these restrictions, but may create other restrictions to further public policy goals. At early common law, restrictions on land held by others were called negative easements. But because a restriction on land use is not visible to a purchaser in the way an affirmative easement, like a driveway, might be, courts were concerned about notice to subsequent owners. In addition, because English law permitted negative easements to be acquired by prescription, there was concern that prescriptive rights in the status quo would prevent useful development of land. Therefore courts limited negative easements to three categories, 1. Rights to lateral support of one's buildings, 2. Rights to free flow of light and air, and 3. Rights to water from an artificial stream. Landowners entered into contractual arrangements to get around these limitations. Point seven contract rights, however, generally did not bind or benefit subsequent purchasers of the benefited or burdened parcels. Individuals had to be in privity of contract, or parties to the original contract, to be either bound by the contract or entitled to enforce its benefits. How could agreements regarding land benefit or burden future possessors of the land? The concept of real covenants developed to address this problem. In Spencer's case, 77 Eng. Rep. 72, 1583, the court held that an agreement would bind successors in interest to the land if it was, 1, in writing, 2, intended to be binding on future tenants, 3, touched and concerned the land, meaning that it affected the use of the land itself, and, 4, if there was privity of estate, or mutual ownership of land, between the covenanting parties. For the English courts, privity of estate meant simultaneous privity, that the parties had simultaneous interests in the same parcel of land. Landlords and tenants were in simultaneous privity because they had rights in the same parcel at the same time. But buyers and sellers of land were not, once the land was sold, the seller would not share a simultaneous interest in the land with the buyer. However, England had two court systems, the law courts, which awarded damages, and the equity courts, which provided equitable injunctive or declaratory relief in cases in which the harsh common law rule would create injustice. In Tolk v. Moxhay, 41 Eng. 
Rep. 1143, 1848, the Chancellor of the Equity Courts created the concept of equitable servitudes, covenants that could be enforced by injunction despite the lack of privity. If the covenant met the writing, intent, and touch and concern requirements, and the current owner had purchased with notice of the restriction, the owner of the burdened estate could be enjoined from violating the covenant. Of course, the court opined, the price would be affected by the covenant, and nothing could be more inequitable than that the original purchaser should be able to sell the property the next day for a greater price, in consideration of the assignee being allowed to escape from the liability which he himself had undertaken, i.d. Real covenants and equitable servitudes thus differed both in the requirements for running with the land and in the remedies available to enforce them. A real covenant requiring privity was necessary to get damages, while an equitable servitude requiring notice was necessary for an injunction. P. 561 Courts in the United States adopted both real covenants and equitable servitudes law. The law of real covenants expanded the definition of privity. Some states did this by expanding the concept of simultaneous privity from the landlord-tenant relationship to situations in which one owner owns an easement in the property of the other and or both owners have mutual easements in each other's property. Most courts expanded the privity concept by adopting the doctrine of instantaneous privity, finding privity if a covenant was created during the legal transfer of land. Thus a covenant included in a deed of sale restricting use of the parcel might bind future owners of the property conveyed. The fiction was that at the moment the deed passes from seller to buyer, the parties have a fleeting simultaneous interest in the property. Over the 20th century, developers initiated vast expansions of the use of the covenant form. Large residential developments in which unit owners had common restrictions and privileges were a key part of the rise of suburbs in the wake of World War II. The proliferation of shopping plazas and shopping malls, in which numerous retail businesses share facilities bound by common rules, followed soon after. Private agreements regarding land use that ran with the land were no longer viewed as idiosyncratic obstacles to development, but as necessary aids to increasingly dense and interconnected land use. In addition, concerns about notice to subsequent buyers were never as significant in the United States, where registries of deeds had recorded restrictions on land since colonial times. Many courts relaxed restrictions on the covenant form, merging the law of real covenants and equitable servitudes, and modifying or even abolishing touch and concern and privity requirements. The massive Levittown development, on Long Island, New York, was one of the most famous of the new subdivisions expanding the use of the covenant form in the wake of World War II, Tony Link, for Life magazine, Aerial View of Levittown, June 1948p, 562. Despite these trends, many courts still adhere to some of the traditional technical requirements and distinctions. It is therefore important to understand both the traditional rules for real covenants and their modern modifications. The table below sets forth the traditional rules for real covenants and equitable servitudes as well as the restatement, third, approach to help make the alternatives clearer. These elements are further discussed in the notes below. Remember, however, that most courts follow a doctrine somewhere between the traditional and restatement, third, rules. Real covenants, damages, equitable servitude, injunctive relief, restatement, third. 1. Writing complying with statute of frauds 1. Writing complying with statute of frauds 1. Writing complying with statute of frauds 2. Intent to run, presumed if appurtenant. 2. 
Intent to run, presumed if appurtenant to. Intent to run, presumed if appurtenant. 3. Privity including both a. Horizontal privity, covenant was created during transfer of burdened and benefited land, or parties are in lesser lessee relationship or own mutual easements. b. Vertical privity, current owners obtained land by legal transfer from original covenanters. 3. Actual, inquiry, or constructive notice to owner of servient estate, enforcer must be intended beneficiary of covenant. 3. Actual, inquiry, or constructive notice to owner of servient estate, enforcer is intended beneficiary. For affirmative obligations, e.g., obligation to pay homeowners association fees, obligation to maintain lawn, burden will only run to tenant if makes more sense for tenant to perform, but benefit can be enforced by either tenant or landowner. 4. Touch and concern, direct effect on use or value of land. Both burden and benefit must touch and concern some land. Benefits in gross will not run against owners of servient estates unless held by governments or nonprofits. 4. Touch and concern, same as for real covenants, direct effect on use or value of land. Both burden and benefit must touch and concern some land. Benefits in gross will not run against owners of servient estates unless held by governments or nonprofits. 4. Enforceable unless unreasonable, covenant is not arbitrary, spiteful, capricious, does not unreasonably burden constitutional right, restrain alienation or restrain trade, and does not otherwise violate public policy. Benefits in gross can run so long as benefit holder has legitimate interest in covenant and is identifiable. Section 3.2 Creation of Covenants p. 563 A. The traditional test Irving Lehman, judge. The plaintiff, the Neponset Property Owners Association, brought an action against defendant Emigrant Industrial Savings Bank to foreclose a lien created by a covenant on land owned by the Emigrant Industrial Savings Bank. The Neponset Realty Company had developed the land as a residential community in 1911. In 1917, it sold property in the development to Robert and Charlotte Dayer. Emigrant Savings Bank bought the Dayer's land at a foreclosure sale in 1935. After selling the parcels, the Neponset Realty Company assigned its rights under the covenant to the Neponset Property Owners Association. The deed to the Dayers included the following covenant, and the party of the second part for the party of the second part and the heirs, successors and assigns of the party of the second part further covenants that the property conveyed by this deed shall be subject to an annual charge in such an amount as will be fixed by the party of the first part, its successors and assigns, not, however exceeding in any year the sum of four, four dollars, dollars per lot, twenty by one hundred feet. The assigns of the party of the first part may include a property owners association which may hereafter be organized for the purposes referred to in this paragraph, and in case such association is organized the sums in this paragraph provided for shall be payable to such association. S.A. charge shall become a lien on the land and shall continue to be such lien until fully paid. Such charge shall be payable to the party of the first part or its successors or assigns, and shall be devoted to the maintenance of the roads, paths, parks, beach, sewers and such other public purposes as shall from time to time be determined by the party of the first part, its successors or assigns. 
And the party of the second part by the acceptance of this deed hereby expressly vests in the party of the first part, its successors and assigns the right and power to bring all actions against the owner of the premises hereby conveyed or any part thereof for the collection of such charge and to enforce the aforesaid lien therefore. These covenants shall run with the land and shall be construed as real covenants running with the land until January 31, 1940, when they shall cease and determine. Every subsequent deed of conveyance of the property in the defendant's chain of title, including the deed from the referee to the defendant, contained, as we have said, a provision that they were made subject to covenants and restrictions of former deeds of record. There can be no doubt that Neponset Realty Company intended that the covenant should run with the land and should be enforceable by a property owner's association against every owner of property in the residential tract which the Realty Company was then developing. The language of the covenant admits of no other construction. NEPONSIT Property Owners Association v. Emigrant Industrial Savings Bank 15 NE2D 793, 1938, p. 564. Regardless of the intention of the parties, a covenant will run with the land and will be enforceable against a subsequent purchaser of the land at the suit of one who claims the benefit of the covenant, only if the covenant complies with certain legal requirements. These requirements rest upon ancient rules and precedents. The age-old essentials of a real covenant, aside from the form of the covenant, may be summarily formulated as follows. 1. It must appear that grantor and grantee intended that the covenant should run with the land. 2. It must appear that the covenant is one, touching, or, concerning, the land with which it runs. 3. It must appear that there is privity of estate between the promisee or party claiming the benefit of the covenant and the right to enforce it, and the promiser or party who rests under the burden of the covenant. The covenant in this case is intended to create a charge or obligation to pay a fixed sum of money to be devoted to the maintenance of the roads, paths, parks, beach, sewers and such other public purposes as shall from time to time be determined by the party of the first part, the grantor, its successors or assigns. It is an affirmative covenant to pay money for use in connection with, but not upon, the land which it is said is subject to the burden of the covenant. Does such a covenant touch? or concern, the land? These terms are not part of a statutory definition, a limitation placed by the state upon the power of the courts to enforce covenants intended to run with the land by the parties who entered into the covenants. Rather they are words used by courts in England in old cases to describe a limitation which the courts themselves created or to formulate a test which the courts have devised and which the courts voluntarily apply. C.F. Spencer's Case, Coke, Volume 3, Part 5, 16a, Mayor of Congleton v. Pattison, 10 East 130. In truth such a description or test so formulated as too vague to be of much assistance and judges and academic scholars alike have struggled, not with entire success, to formulate a test at once more satisfactory and more accurate. It has been found impossible to state any absolute tests to determine what covenants touch and concern land and what do not. The question is one for the court to determine in the exercise of its best judgment upon the facts of each case, Clark on Covenants and Interests Running with Land, p. 76. It has been suggested that a covenant which runs with the land must affect the legal relations, the advantages and the burdens, of the parties to the covenant, as owners of particular parcels of land and not merely as members of the community in general, such as taxpayers or owners of other land. That method of approach has the merit of realism. The test is based on the effect of the covenant rather than on technical distinctions. 
Does the covenant impose, on the one hand, a burden upon an interest in land, which on the other hand increases the value of a different interest in the same or related land? A promise to pay for something to be done in connection with the promiser's land does not differ essentially from a promise by the promiser to do the thing himself, and both promises constitute, in a substantial sense, a restriction upon the owner's right to use the land, and a burden upon the legal interest of the owner. On the other hand, a covenant to perform or pay for the performance of an affirmative act disconnected with the use of the land cannot ordinarily touch or concern the land in any substantial degree. Thus, unless we exalt technical form over substance, the distinction between covenants which run with land and covenants which are personal, must depend upon the effect of the covenant on the legal rights which otherwise would flow from ownership of land and which are connected with the land. The problem then is, does the covenant in purpose and effect substantially alter these rights? p. 565 Looking at the problem presented in this case, it seems clear that the covenant may properly be said to touch and concern the land of the defendant and its burden should run with the land. True, it calls for payment of a sum of money to be expended for public purposes upon land other than the land conveyed by Neponset Realty Company to plaintiff's predecessor in title. By that conveyance the grantee, however, obtained not only title to particular lots, but an easement or right of common enjoyment with other property owners in roads, beaches, public parks or spaces and improvements in the same tract. For full enjoyment in common by the defendant and other property owners of these easements or rights, the roads and public places must be maintained. In order that the burden of maintaining public improvements should rest upon the land benefited by the improvements, the grantor exacted from the grantee of the land with its appurtenant easement or right of enjoyment a covenant that the burden of paying the cost should be inseparably attached to the land which enjoys the benefit. It is plain that any distinction or definition which would exclude such a covenant from the classification of covenants which touch or concern the land would be based on form and not on substance. Another difficulty remains. Though between the grantor and the grantee there was privity of estate, the covenant provides that its benefit shall run to the assigns of the grantor who may include a property owner's association which may hereafter be organized for the purposes referred to in this paragraph. The plaintiff has been organized to receive the sums payable by the property owners and to expend them for the benefit of such owners. Various definitions have been formulated of privity of estate in connection with covenants that run with the land, but none of such definitions seems to cover the relationship between the plaintiff and the defendant in this case. The plaintiff has not succeeded to the ownership of any property of the grantor. It does not appear that it ever had title to the streets or public places upon which charges which are payable to it must be expended. It does not appear that it owns any other property in the residential tract to which any easement or right of enjoyment in such property is appurtenant. It is created solely to act as the assignee of the benefit of the covenant, and it has no interest of its own in the enforcement of the covenant. The arguments that under such circumstances the plaintiff has no right of action to enforce a covenant running with the land are all based upon a distinction between the corporate property owners association and the property owners for whose benefit the association has been formed. If that distinction may be ignored, then the basis of the arguments is destroyed. The corporate plaintiff has been formed as a convenient instrument by which the property owners may advance their common interests. We do not ignore the corporate form when we recognize that the Neponset Property Owners Association, Inc., is acting as the agent or representative of the Neponset Property Owners. 
As we have said in another case, when Neponset Property Owners Association, Inc. was formed, the property owners were expected to, and have looked to that organization as the medium through which enjoyment of their common right might be preserved equally for all. Matter of City of New York, Public Beach, Borough of Queens, 269 NY 64, 75, 199 NE59. Only blind adherence to an ancient formula devised to meet entirely different conditions could constrain the court to hold that a corporation formed as a medium for the enjoyment of common rights of property owners owns no property which would benefit by enforcement of common rights and has no cause of action in equity to enforce the covenant upon which such common rights depend. In substance if not inform the covenant as a restrictive covenant which touches and concerns the defendant's land, and in substance, if not inform, there is privity of estate between the plaintiff and the defendant. P. 566. Context The residents of Neponset have included well-known figures such as New York Mayor Abe Beam and, for a time, Judy Garland. Affirmed, Notes and Questions 1. Defining the Issue. Neponset Property Owners Association, decided in 1938 just before the explosion of residential common interest developments, considered whether the Neponset Property Owners Association could enforce a covenant to pay $4 per lot annually for the maintenance of roads, parks, beach, and other public amenities of the Neponset development against the Emigrant Savings Bank. Because neither the plaintiff nor the defendant was an original signatory to the covenant, the question is whether the covenant ran with the land to bind or benefit succeeding owners of the property. In holding that the covenant could be enforced, the court decided two enormously important questions for residential developments. First, whether affirmative covenants to pay fees for the benefit of common amenities in the development touched and concerned the land. And second, whether property owners associations, rather than individual owners themselves, were in privity of a state and could enforce the restrictions. Let's first lay out the history of the covenants and the land. The Neponset Realty Association owned and developed the area on Rockaway Peninsula as a 38-block, 1,600-home high-end residential community between 1910 and 1920. C. Stewart E. Sturk, Neponset Property Owners Association v. Emigrant Savings Bank, Property Stories 384, 2009. Robert and Charlotte Dayer purchased their home from the Realty Association in 1917. Their deed, like all others in the community, included numerous covenants, including the one at issue in the case. The Realty Association assigned its ability to enforce the covenants to the Neponset Property Owners Association, to which all property owners in Neponset automatically became members. In 1935, in the aftermath of the Great Depression, the Dayers lost their home to foreclosure, and Emigrant Savings Bank purchased it at a foreclosure sale. What would have happened if Dayer had stopped paying the maintenance fees before the transfer from Neponset Realty to the Neponset property owners? The answer is simple, Dayer is bound by normal contract law to Neponset Realty. However, both owners transferred their interests. Two issues appear. First, are the original covenanting parties still bound and benefited by the promise? Second, are their successors bound and benefited by the promise? Two. Rights and Obligations of Original Covenanting Parties In general, the original parties to a covenant will no longer have rights or obligations under a covenant after they have sold the land the covenant concerns. A. Benefit of Covenants Held in Gross First, does Neponset Realty have the power to enforce the covenant once it sells all its land in the development? The answer is probably no for two reasons. 
First, a court will likely interpret the covenant to benefit the current owner of the land and not prior possessors, unless the agreement contains explicit language to the contrary. Waikiki Malia Hotel, Inc. v. King K Properties Limited Partnership, 862 P2D, 1048, 1057 1059, Ha. 1993, p. 567. Second, even when the language of the covenant is clear, courts have traditionally refused to impose the burden of a covenant on future owners of the servient estate if the benefit of the covenant is held in gross, meaning that it benefits an individual or entity rather than land. An important exception is that many jurisdictions, by common law or statute, permit enforcement of covenants in gross when the covenant is held by a government entity or by a charity, like a land conservation trust or a historic preservation trust. See Uniform Conservation Easement Act, adopted in more than 20 states, Bennett v. Commissioner of Food and Agriculture, 576 NE 2D 1365, Mass. 1991. B. Enforceability against original covenanter after the land is transferred. Are the dayers, the original promisers, still bound to ensure by the present performance of the covenant? The answer is almost certainly no. A prior owner is not legally responsible for the actions of the subsequent owners of the burdened land. Had the dayers simply leased the land to Emigrant Savings Bank, the answer would probably be yes. Leases are treated differently from sales because landlords may include the covenant in any lease and end the leasehold and evict the tenant if the tenant violates the lease. The landlord's failure to include such a covenant or to exercise the right to enforce such a covenant constitutes an independent breach of the covenant. 3. Obligations of successors in interest. Can the successor owners of the dominant estate, the owners of the other parcels in the Neponset development, obtain relief against Emigrant Savings Bank, the subsequent possessor of the Servient estate? The answer will be yes only if both the benefit and the burden run with the land. In addition, to determine what kind of relief is available, we must apply both the law of real covenants and the law of equitable servitudes. If the court follows traditional distinctions, damages are only available for real covenants, while injunctive relief is only available for equitable servitudes. Under the law of real covenants, land use restrictions run with the land when, 1, the covenant is in writing, 2, the grantor intended the restriction to run with the land on both sides, binding future owners of the servient estate and benefiting future owners of the dominant estate, 3, the restriction touches and concerns both the dominant and servient estates, and, 4, privity of estate exists between the original covenanting parties, horizontal privity, and between those parties and succeeding owners, vertical privity. Equitable servitude's law contains most of these elements, but replaces privity of estate with notice of the covenant to the owner of servient estate. Notice was not originally required to enforce a real covenant, but almost all courts today require notice for enforcement of a real covenant as well. The restatement third, which substantially modifies the privity and touch and concern requirements, is discussed separately in section 3.2.b. Four of the five requirements are formalities, while only one, the touch and concern test, is substantive. Formal requirements regulate the manner in which a right or obligation is created. Individuals who wish to create the right or obligation may do so as long as they adhere to the formalities. They are not designed to prevent or discourage particular behavior, rather, they are rules designed to ensure that actors communicate their intentions clearly, both to each other and to the judges who are empowered to enforce their agreements. Duncan Kennedy, 
Form and Substance in Private Law Adjudication, 89 p. 568. Harv, L. Rev. 1685, 1691, 1976. Substantive requirements, on the other hand, limit the ability of individuals to create certain rights. They prevent people from engaging in particular activities because those activities are morally wrong or otherwise flatly undesirable, i.d. No amount of careful planning will enable an owner to avoid such a requirement. We will start with the formal requirements, writing, notice, intent, and privity, and then discuss the substantive touch and concern test. 4. Writing complying with the statute of frauds. Like all transfers of property interests lasting more than a year, the covenant must be created in a writing signed by the grantor and otherwise complying with the statute of frauds to be valid. Once the covenant is created, the writing need not be repeated in subsequent transfers of the land. Here, the written covenant in the deed transferring the land from Neponset Realty to the Dayers clearly satisfies the writing requirement. Developers of residential subdivisions may also record a declaration of restrictions applicable to the entire subdivision and or a plat, a detailed map showing the restrictions, before any lot is sold. Some states may require that the restriction be specifically mentioned in the deed or lease when individual lots are sold, even if only by reference to the earlier recorded declaration or plat. Most states, however, find that a covenant in a prior recorded declaration or plat meets the writing requirement. Conway v. Miller, 232 p. 3d. 390, Mont. 2010, Platt showing a building restriction line, was sufficient although deeds did not reference the restriction, Citizens for Covenant Compliance v. Anderson, 906 p. 2d. 1314, Cal, 1995. As discussed earlier in this chapter, easements can be created by implication. Can covenants? The short answer is yes, but more rarely. Where a seller fraudulently promises that there are covenants on the land, and the buyers rely to their detriment on the promise, courts have sometimes applied the equitable doctrine of estoppel to enforce the false representations. C.E.G. Prospect Development Co. Inc. v. Bershader, 515-SE2D-291, V.A. 1999, preventing development of wooded lot next to plaintiff's home when developer's maps designated lot as preserved land, charged a premium for lot next to land, repeatedly told buyers that lot would not be developed, and the bird-loving buyers had designed their home to get the best view of the wooded lot, PMZ Oil Co. v. Lucroy, 449 So. 2D 201, Miss. 1984, enjoining construction of townhouse condominiums in development when the developer had told all lot purchasers that its 16-lot subdivision would be restricted to one quality single-family dwelling per lot and showed them an unrecorded plat noting the restrictions. But see Bennett v. Charles Corp. 226 SE 2D 559 W. V. A. 1976. Allowing a developer to convert remaining unsold lots in a subdivided tract into a cemetery, despite the developer's oral promise to develop a tract as a residential subdivision, finding no fraudulent or inequitable conduct. 5. Notice. The notice requirement is intended to protect the owner of the servient estate, so the question is whether the owner of the burdened estate knew or should have known the parcel was restricted when she purchased the land. Notice may be actual, inquiry, or constructive. A. 
A buyer or lessee is on actual notice of the covenant if he was actually told about it or was otherwise made aware of it. In Neponset, it is unclear whether Emigrant Savings Bank was on actual notice of the covenant when it purchased the property at a foreclosure sale. P. 569. B. The buyer or lessee is on inquiry notice, sometimes called actual implied notice, if the condition of the premises would make a reasonable purchaser inquire about the existence of a covenant. Inquiry notice of covenants is less likely than inquiry notice of easements, such as rights of way, which a buyer can often visually observe. Some courts have found, however, that a uniform pattern of residential development places a reasonable buyer on notice of the potential presence of restrictive covenants. C. E. G. Sanborn v. McLean, 206 N. W. 496, Mish. 1925. In Win Dixie Stores, Inc. v. Dalgancourt, Inc. 964 So. 2D 261, Florida. Dist. Court. App. 2007, the court found that a corporation with 7,800 stores in shopping plazas across America was on inquiry notice that the anchor tenant likely had a covenant preventing competing grocery stores in the plaza. Is this finding justified? In most cases, however, the primary inquiry is likely to be conducted by researching the registry of deeds to find any relevant recorded restrictions. That brings us to constructive notice. C. A buyer or lessee is said to be on constructive notice if the restriction was recorded within the registry of deeds and could be found via a reasonable search of the records prior to sale. A reasonable purchaser is expected to search the title to find out whether the property is burdened by any land use restrictions. The facts of Neponset state that every deed in Emigrant Savings Bank's chain of title provided that the conveyances were subject to covenants and restrictions of former deeds of record, implying that the day or deed was recorded, so Emigrant Savings Bank was on constructive notice. What if the covenant was recorded in the deed between the seller, Neponset Realty, and a prior purchaser of adjoining land? Neponset Realty might have, for example, pledged to a prior purchaser to restrict all its remaining land in the development to single-family residences, but only recorded the covenant with that purchaser's deed. States disagree on whether a subsequent purchaser is on notice of the covenant. The majority of courts hold that a reasonable record search includes all grants made by the original owner regarding nearby or contiguous land while the grantor owned the property. Because title searches in the United States are typically made by looking under the name of the grantor, rather than the specific location of the property, these courts hold that purchasers are on constructive notice of restrictions by the grantor recorded regarding other property. A substantial minority of courts, however, hold that the purchaser is only bound by those restrictions appearing in the chain of title for the burdened property itself. 6. Intent to run with the land. Intent to run with the land may be made explicit, as it is in the Neponset deed, with language declaring that it is on behalf of the owners, successors or assigns, or that the covenant runs with the land. What happens if the deed or lease does not include such language? Courts generally hold that appurtenant covenants, those benefiting some land, are presumptively intended to run with the benefited and burdened land. See Sun Oil Co. v. Trent Auto Wash, Inc., 150 NW2D 818, Mish, 1967, holding that a covenant prohibiting use of land to operate a gas station was intended to run with the land, Runyon v. Paley, 416 SC2D 177, 185-187, NC. 
1992, presuming that the benefit was intended to run with the land if it is clear the burden was intended to run with the land. However, some courts require clear evidence of intent to run. Charping v. J.P. Scurry & Co., 372 S.E. 2D 120 S.C. 1988, Tensco Corp. v. Atia, 2002 W.L. 1298808-10. Court. App. 2002. P. 570. 7. Privity of Estate. The concept of privity of estate contains the core principle of servitude's law, one piece of property is burdened for the benefit of another, so-called horizontal privity, and these benefits and burdens run to succeeding owners of both parcels, vertical privity. At the same time, the law of privity developed maddeningly complicated technical limitations that were unrelated to any legitimate policy concerns. The modern trend is to relax or do away with the privity requirement, but a number of states still retain it. See Beeren and Berry Investments, LLC v. AHC, Inc., 671 SE 2D 147, VA, 2009, Cunningham v. City of Greensboro, 711 SE 2D 477, NC Court. App 2011. Although privity was not traditionally required to obtain injunctive relief for a covenant as an equitable servitude, courts that maintain the requirement may not make this distinction, or may require privity to enforce obligations to pay assessments, as in Neponset. A. Horizontal Privity Horizontal privity regulates the relationship between the original covenanting parties. Because land use restrictions both limit the free use of land and may make it less alienable, they were traditionally thought to be unjustified unless the burden on land was outweighed by a compensating benefit to some other property owner. The horizontal privity requirement served to promote this purpose. Most courts in the United States adopted an instantaneous privity test, finding horizontal privity when the covenant is created at the moment the owner of one parcel sells or transfers rights in the other parcel. Thus, a covenant contained in a deed of sale transferring a property interest will satisfy the horizontal privity requirement. Similarly, a covenant in a lease transferring a leasehold or a mortgage transferring a lien or right to foreclose will satisfy the horizontal privity requirement. What kinds of relationships does horizontal privity exclude? The two most important are 1. Agreements between neighbors that are not part of a simultaneous conveyance of another property right. 2. Agreements between grantors and grantees that are not made at the same time as the conveyance of the property interest burdened or benefited by the covenant. 8. An example of the first problem is a contract among all the owners in a neighborhood to restrict the property to residential uses. Because the neighbors already own their land, they are not in privity of estate. An example of the second problem is a covenant made one week after the sale of a parcel. This does not satisfy the privity requirement because at that moment the grantor no longer owns the property of the grantee. B. Vertical privity. Vertical privity means that the original covenanting parties transferred their interests to the subsequent possessors of the parcel. It would include, for example, sale, lease, inheritance, and foreclosure, but not adverse possession, because the prior owner did not formally transfer her interest. Some states follow a strict vertical privity standard, requiring that the grantor does not retain any future interests in the land. Thus vertical privity would be present when an owner sells her property but not when she leases it. 
Sea Wind Dixie Stores, Inc. v. Dalgancore, LLC, 746 F3D 1008, 11th CIR. 2014, finding that Missouri law required strict vertical privity, so Winn-Dixie could not enforce its covenant with shopping center against lessees in shopping center. Others follow a relaxed vertical privity standard, which would allow covenants to run to all to those assigned possession, such as lessees. P. 571. In Whitensville Plaza v. Kotzis, 390 NE 2D 243, Mass. 1979, for example, the Costias brothers divided their land into two parcels, and conveyed one to 122 trust. In the deed, the Costias covenanted not to use their remaining parcel for a discount store, but only for certain purposes, which included a drug store. 122 trust then sold its parcel to Whitensville Plaza, and Whitensville established a discount store on the land. The Costias subsequently leased part of their abutting land to a CVS. Whitensville claimed the CVS was a discount store, not just a drug store, violating the covenant. Under a relaxed vertical privity standard, Whitensville could demand damages from both the Kotzis and CVS, but under a strict standard, it could demand damages only from the Costias, and not their lessee. 8. Substantive Requirements, the Touch and Concern, Test. Courts have traditionally allowed covenants to run with the land only if they touch and concern the land, meaning that they affect the use or value of the land itself. The test is intended to identify the kinds of obligations that should attach to the land rather than the individuals making the agreement. Where the burdens and benefits created by the covenant may exist independently from the party's ownership interests in land, the covenant does not touch and concern the land and will not run with the land. Runyon v. Paley, 416 SE 2D 177, 183, NC 1992, see Vulcan Materials Co. v. Miller, 691 So. 2D 908, 914, Miss. 1997, a covenant that imposes a burden on real property for the benefit of the grantor personally does not follow the land into the possession of an assignee. 7 Thompson on Real Property, Thomas Editions, Section 61.04, Restatement of Property Section 537, 1944. On the burden side, an obligation touches and concerns the burdened estate if it affects the use and enjoyment of the land. On the benefit side, an obligation touches and concerns a dominant estate if it improves enjoyment of that land or increases its market value. Restrictive covenants that limit land use, such as covenants limiting the land to residential purposes or prohibiting the sale of liquor on the land p. 572, will generally touch and concern both the dominant and servient estates. They touch and concern the servient estate because they restrict the use of the land. They touch and concern the dominant estate because the restriction is intended to benefit the owners of the dominant estates whoever they happen to be and because most purchasers of the dominant estates would consider the right to enforce the covenant as increasing the value or attractiveness of the benefited land. The traditional refusal to enforce covenants when the benefit is held in gross, note 2, a, supra, is an application of the touch and concern test. Covenants that restrict land use interfere with both the right of free use of property and the marketability of the property. This cost is thought to be justified if there is a sufficient compensating benefit to other land. 
But when no land is benefited this presumption falls away, and the autonomy interests of current owners trumps the power of the dead hand of prior owners to control the property. See Garland v. Rosenschein, 649 NE2D 756, Mass. 1995 Lakewood Racquet Club, Inc. v. Jensen, 232 P3D 1147, Wash. App 2010. Affirmative obligations to pay fees, like that in Neponset, have often caused problems for the courts. Payment of money may appear to be more in the realm of contract law than an obligation that should attach to the land itself. As the court recognized in Neponset, however, when the fees are used to maintain the common elements of a community, it does touch and concern the land by preserving the value of the properties in a community. Although the obligation to pay property owners association dues is now well established, other cases are more